uncharacteristically, perhaps, a little nervous at the moment. Um, this is still really hot, if you would turn it down a little bit. Um, and that is because I'm going to get really real with you guys first before we get into the message. So um, I know that scares some of you guys because <laughs> uh, you're like, oh, no, what's he going to say? Um, I got angry this morning about something I probably shouldn't have gotten angry about. And I was having trouble. I couldn't keep it off my face because people kept, kept saying, you know. Um, so my anger was hanging with me through the worship service. To the point where I was not able to worship wasn't God's fault. It wasn't the fault of the person that I got frustrated with. It was my fault. And I talked to God about it. And he was like, hey, man, you need to re-engage. I said, okay. And so I stood up, started singing right about the time that line. <laughs> you know those people that can preach while they're crying? <laughs> Not me. <sighs> Who could imagine... So great a mercy. I was thinking about how I've been forgiven so much. And I, I was having trouble letting go of something so simple and petty and stupid as a bruised ego. It just kind of broke me. And I didn't want to be in here for the greeting time because I didn't want to be fake. Um, this is not fake. We are here to be real with each other. And when you come to be a part of a worship service, and you're about to commune with the Lord and take the Lord's Supper, do not hold on to anything. Let go of whatever's, whatever you're clinging to besides Jesus, let go of it. And if you came here this morning and you're upset about something, let it go. And if you, if you have some kind of besetting sin, let it go. He rebroke me one more time before I took communion. I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> so I had to kind of process that. And uh, uh, just let go of whatever is 
holding you back from the Lord. And now for today's second sermon. Good morning. Um, you know, as usual, I'm excited to be preaching. Uh, I love to preach the word of the Lord to his people. I missed it last week. It was really good to, to see Joyson and to hear Joyson. Uh, and um, his, his English has gotten a lot better. So thank God for that. Um, if you would please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, there's going to be another week with a, a guest speaker and, a, uh, and also a major holiday between now and the end of the year. And so uh, <clears throat> I've elected to do a couple of messages outside of the book of Acts. Um, don't worry, though. We are going to come back. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20. We'll start that next year. But in the meantime, while the kids are finding these nine hidden bingo pictures here, we're gonna, um, I'm going to share with you where the motivation for this message came from. Uh, most of you are aware, the last week, our, our dear friend and, and brother, Joyce Maruga, came and he spoke to us about his ministry, and he encouraged us uh, to become more engaged in the, the faith life and in prayer, and it was a very convicting message. And, um, but there was a very good question that was raised regarding a comment that he made in the sermon uh, once, uh, which I thought was probably due to a language barrier, but it was certainly worth asking him about. And the comment was when he referred to Christians as having the goal of getting to heaven, which at face value sounds a bit works-oriented. And so this led to an excellent discussion with him, a long one, over uh, while we were waiting for Indian food <laughs> to come. Um, and it was... Uh, we were bantering back and forth with a lot, lot of stuff. Uh, we were talking about justification by faith and not by works, which he does agree with. But that said, uh, we were just launching scripture after scripture at each other for a while. Uh, a lot of passages from Peter's epistles as well as the words of Jesus himself from Matthew and Luke. And we also agreed that a person with saving faith repents of sin and begins to do the good works that God commands which, by the way, is what the New Testament very clearly teaches. I want to make sure we all understand this. And after dropping that humble man off at the airport, uh, I gave him a hug, and he just started to weep. And I was just thinking about that conversation, and then while preparing for uh, this ridiculous workout that I decided to do last night that wiped me out, or last week that wiped me out for like two days, um, I pulled up this sermon I wanted to listen to. Actually, it was a series of sermons, but one of them was by John MacArthur. It's called The Believer's Highest Earthly Joy, which is based on 1 Peter 1, 3 through 8. I highly recommend it to everybody here. Grace to You is, a, uh, is his podcast, the Grace to You Pulpit podcast. It uploaded on November 1st. It was a sermon from the 21st, or the uh, 31st, excuse me, of October. You may not agree with all of John MacArthur's theology or, or even how he necessarily uh, expresses it, but anyone can appreciate how he digs into the idea of Christian joy based on our assurance of salvation. And so after hearing that message, on top of my dialogue with Joyce and I felt a nudge to preach a message on the hope that we have in Christ. And that led me to Hebrews 10. And so that's the story behind 
the text this morning being the text for this morning. If it seems like this message came out of nowhere, trust me, it did not. Okay? There are people in this room that really need to hear this, and I'm probably one of them. Okay? So if you would, uh, we'll pray. We'll invite the Lord to convict our hearts. God, You're already convicting my heart this morning. Um, I pray that you'll convict everybody here. Help us to be real with you. If we can't be real with you, we're certainly not going to be real with each other. Help us to understand what you have done for us. And let that motivate us in every next step. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to start in verse 10, Hebrews 10, 10. There's a lot of buildup, okay, to this passage we're not going to get into today. Um, you know, honestly, I hope to preach through Hebrews one of these days, but, or one of these decades. <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of it today except to say the author of Hebrews spends a tremendous amount of ink describing how Jesus Christ is superior to anyone and anything that could compete with him in any way, okay? That's what the book is about. And there's a ton of good stuff in Hebrews, but for now we're going to hone in on this, this particular section. We're going to talk about the full assurance of faith. So let's jump in. Okay. By that will, he writes, referring to God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now this phrase, once for all, is a very important point. And the author is, is actually kind of repeating himself from chapter 9. Once for all means one and done. When Jesus says, it is finished from the cross, he wasn't trying to come up with a cool line. That, that meant the wrath of God against sin had been fulfilled in him. There's no additional sacrifice that was needed. And that's important. And as we, we back up to the top of the verse, we see that it was God's will to sanctify us through that single sacrifice. And there's a whole lot more connected with that. We're going to get to that as, as we continue on. But the author says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. So meaning what? What's, what's he referring to here? You know, in this section of Scripture, he's been explaining how Christ is not like the standard human priest that, that existed in the Old Testament, but he is vastly superior. And he tells us why. You know, there are other reasons that are mentioned earlier in the book, most notably the fact that a strictly human priest was also offering atonement for his own sin, whereas Jesus was and is completely without sin. But here the difference the author of Hebrews speaks to is the ineffectiveness of sacrifices that were offered under the Old Covenant. You know, these same old, same old sacrifices have to be offered repeatedly because they can never truly take away sins. They served as a placeholder until the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, came through whom the Father redeems us. Now, this is a crucial part of the gospel message. That word crucial is interesting. It comes from the word cross. 
Christ died for our sins. That's necessary for us to understand. Christ died for our sins. His bodily resurrection could never have happened apart from His physical death. And through Jesus' death on the cross, God redeemed a people for Himself out of a world which was actively in rebellion against Him. You know, there's this scene in the original Star Wars uh, where Obi-Wan Kenobi is warning Luke about this place he's going to enter, and he says, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And that's a pretty accurate description of this earth if we view it through the eyes of a holy God who is intolerant of sin. But through Christ, God brought us back. He bought us back from our slavery to sin and the world and carnal flesh, and He purchased us by the precious blood of the Lamb. You know, not only did He do this Himself, but it was absolutely necessary, as we can do nothing to redeem ourselves. We have no way that we can redeem ourselves. I want you to think, meditate on that just for a minute. We can not redeem ourselves. There's absolutely nothing that we could do, ever, that we could offer to God to purchase our own salvation. There's no level of apology. There's no level of, of restitution. No amount of good works. We, we can't earn our way into heaven. It is not possible. God demands perfection. And that's why he sent his own son, our spotless lamb, to provide a way where we have no other possible option. And friends, we have got to understand this, or we just we won't get how good the good news is. If we think we can earn points with God, you know, apart, apart from his son Jesus, apart from him viewing us through the lens of Christ, we are dead wrong. We receive this incredible privilege of being covered by the blood of Christ by faith. Our salvation is a gift. Ephesians 2.8. It's free for us. Let's continue. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. You know, there, there's that concept again. For all time, a single sacrifice is what Christ offered. And we need to understand this so we don't fall into mistaken theology that says that Christ is continually being sacrificed. His sacrifice once was enough. And now He's waiting to come. He's, he's waiting to redeem His people, not just from their sins, but from these sinful bodies and to glorify us. You think about, what, what about us? What, what about his people? Here's my favorite verse in the Bible. At least it's in my top five or ten. It's probably, probably one of the top three. I don't know. But, it, you know, you've seen it. It's a tagline in my emails. For by a single offering, he has perfected forever, excuse me, for all time, those who are being sanctified. I want to read that again. I want to do this with emphases, okay? 
for by a single offering. Once for all, He, that's Jesus Christ, has perfected, past tense, for all time. Those who are being continual tense, sanctified. That's a lot to unpack. But I think that it bears witness to the scriptural truth that God's justification of a person by faith is permanent. Because how else are we supposed to understand the phrase perfected for all time? And this is a clear reference to when God applies the forgiveness of sins to a person and declares them not guilty. And it was enacted from the moment that Jesus paid for the sins of the world, but it was made effectual upon the quickening of faith in the believer. This sacrifice made once perfects forever the person who is in Christ Jesus by faith. Y'all, that is a wonderful promise. But we must not neglect what the rest of the passage teaches, and specifically this very verse. Justification is permanent, but do not be fooled. If it has truly occurred, it will always result in sanctification. Always. This promise only applies to those who are being sanctified. That means being made holy, being conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Okay? A person who, who is not undergoing a change in their, their mind, their heart, and eventually their behavior, they have no basis by which to claim this promise. As James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, be doers of the word, and not merely hearers, deceiving yourselves. You know, a person who is claiming to, to be saved, but they're not experiencing any growth in the Spirit, they have not experienced any growth, they are deceiving themselves. Now, before anyone falls into despair, I want you to please understand that there may be periodic slumps in your Christian walk. Okay? There may be times of, of spiritual dryness, and this is very clearly shown by the variety of spiritual expression that we see in the Psalms, especially the Davidic Psalms. I love David's words. Remember, he, he's probably, I think he's the only person in the Old Testament who is said to have received the Holy Spirit for life upon being anointed as a teenager by the prophet Samuel, and yet he was plagued with times of doubt, frustration, and disappointment. You know, there are times when even King David struggled to see God. And of course, his moral failings are well known. We're all familiar with what things David did. It's always dangerous to base our assurance on feelings, friends, because feelings can lie. God never lies. That's in Hebrews also. Speaking of Hebrews, uh, let's pick up verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Anybody know where that is? Jeremiah, Jeremiah what? 33? Okay, good call. Jeremiah. Thank you, Wyatt. Jeremiah. This is a promise that God makes. He's referring to when the Holy Spirit was going to come and dwell in his people. Anyway, God says, I will put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Praise God. 
for this promise. Praise God. As Psalm 32 said, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, who does this passage say that it is who bears witness to this? Y'all can read, right? Who said that? Holy Spirit. Thank you. Right in the middle there, Jerry. Thank you. The Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness. And that's our next point. God's Spirit provides assurance. And this echoes uh, Paul's statement in Romans 8. He says that God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And now, while it's true that feelings are not always reliable, it's helpful to know that God's Spirit speaks to His children and tells us that we belong to Him. Of course, we're not always able to recognize when the Spirit of God is speaking to us because we're not as sensitive to it as we ought to be. Uh, Excuse me, He is not an it. We're not as sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to Him, as we ought to be. And that's due to a lack of training ourselves, I believe, to being receptive. It's it's a lack of spiritual receptivity because we we don't practice our faith enough. But whether we are feeling His ownership on us or not, for for those who are justified and are being sanctified, which those are the same, these are the same people, if you're justified, you are being sanctified, He gives us new minds and hearts. And this is incredibly encouraging. We shouldn't blow off what's expressed in this statement, okay? Because if, if you will think back on your time, okay, before knowing Christ, you will probably remember that you used to enjoy sin a whole lot more, right? Anybody experience that when all of a sudden you, you've been saved and you, you slip into sin? Because we shouldn't be diving into sin anymore, but you might fall into sin. And when you fall into sin, you're like, this is awful. I don't like this anymore. You know, it, it's... It's in the moment, I'm, I'm going I'm to admit this, because we all know this, in the moment, sin gives us pleasure. That's why we do it, right? In the moment. But when you are not saved, it's not just in that moment that you're experiencing the sin and going, ooh, it's, you're looking forward to it with anticipation. You're looking back on it fondly. But when God gives us a new mind, when God gives us a new heart, sin goes from being our old familiar friend to being our enemy. And whether we see it that way or not probably depends on our current level of sanctification, honestly. But the the fact that remains, all those whom the Holy Spirit indwells will also be given a new affection for the things of God. And we will develop a gradual revulsion to the sins of the flesh that we used to indulge in. Although our flesh will likely still crave those things. That's why we still find pleasure in them if we slip into them. We will experience a change in how we relate to those desires. They used to rule us, remember? We used to be their slave. Who are we slaves to now? Jesus Christ. We are slaves to righteousness, not to sin. And that is thanks to God's Spirit at work within us. And His Spirit also applies the forgiveness of our sins that Jesus won for us on the cross. You know, when we think of eternal life in heaven as the ultimate purpose of salvation, I think that's probably normal human you know, feelings, but there's a lot more to it than that. Let, let's not forget the majestic glory that belongs to God because of His decision to forgive us at infinite cost to Himself. Infinite cost. 
When he justifies a person under the new covenant, he puts, he puts his spirit in that person too, and we are reminded of our sonship through that spirit because of his work in us. And if we find in ourselves a real desire to please the Lord and we, we observe a trend towards living in a way that we know is pleasing to him, that is strong evidence that we have received that forgiveness. Continuing in verse 18, it says, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. He's just reiterating Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, I, I want you to pause there. This passage is what my English teachers in elementary school would have called an if-then statement. Okay, The Greek structure is kind of wonky, but essentially the author of Hebrews is saying, since yada, 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 therefore blah, blah, blah. Okay, He expresses this great truth and then he follows it up with its application, with what it means. And the great truth is basically this. Jesus is both our great high priest and our perfect sacrifice. In effect, he both served at the altar as the one who intercedes on behalf of sinners, and he served on the altar. And I'll tell you, it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't even until I was writing this message when I was struck by the enormity of Jesus' intercession as our great high priest. I mean, think about this. When we compare the Old Testament sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ, the importance of of the spotless lamb, it's always the focal point, right? And there's good reason for that, okay? But for some reason, we are less likely to talk about the importance of a holy and consecrated, consecrated priest. You know, we've discussed before, there's over 600 laws in the Old Testament that God gave to Israel, and a good percentage of those were relating to the priests and how they were to be kept ceremonially clean, to be set apart, what that word holy means, set apart, for the service of God. They were, they were separated for ministering to the Lord. But as we stated earlier, those priests still committed sin sometimes. They may have been ceremonially clean, but Christ himself was the first and only morally perfect priest. And on top of that, he offered the only possible worthy sacrifice, which is himself. You know, Scripture refers to Jesus as the propitiation for the sins of man. And, and that means he was the atoning sacrifice that appeased the wrath of God against sin. And the author of Hebrews makes a reference uh, to the rending of the temple curtain, which the Gospel of Matthew tells us was torn from top to bottom, which is awesome because that was a 30-foot curtain, right? Torn from top to bottom. That wasn't people doing that. No, no, no. Okay? He applies this to Jesus' flesh because Jesus was the temple curtain for us. He was both sinless and he was divine. And because of that, he was acceptable to the Father as payment for the sins of finite human beings. This, this acceptance was proven by his eternal resurrection from the dead. You know, Jesus wasn't the first person in Scripture to come back to life from the dead, but he's the first person to never die again, amen? 
Because of this, his blood is the basis for our confidence. So you might ask, well, what's our confidence regarding? To enter into the holy places, the author says. Meaning what? I want us to define some terms, okay? What are the holy places? If you remember your Sunday school, you probably remember something about the holy place and the most holy place. You know, in the temple and in the tabernacle that preceded it, there was, there was a special area that was curtained off where the presence of God was said to inhabit and where the high priest could only enter once a year. But because the temple curtain was torn in two, God was showing that there was no longer a barrier in between himself and the people who come to him in faith. So that's the holy places. Confidence is boldness based on one of two things. It's either based on one's ability or based on one's status. Now, which is it for us? Thank you, one of you. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Status. Now, we are confident in Jesus' ability, right? Right? To please God by his perfect obedience. But we are confident not in our own ability, right? We're confident in our status as children of God to enter the holy places. You know, earlier in Hebrews 4, we're told we may approach the throne of grace with confidence in order to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, through Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, we can draw near to God in faith. That is not a presumption. That is a statement of fact. We can draw near to God. I want to finish that thought. Uh, due to the blood of Jesus and his high priesthood, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Before we read this last verse, I want us to put this in context, okay? In the Old Testament, pretty much everything in the temple was ceremonially cleansed by being sprinkled with blood. And in both Testaments, the, the Holy Spirit is often compared to water, right? While baptism by immersion is a, is a type of washing that becomes a sacrament of the church in the New Testament. And while there are many different views on this passage, I think the author is referring to the twofold washing that occurs when a person enters into Christ. We perform an outer washing baptism meant to correspond to the inward cleansing that God that God does to us. He performs it through our great high priest when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. I'm talking, the point here is, is, is the point at which we have faith in God. That's when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills us and begins to reshape our minds and our hearts in the image of Christ. And this fits the idea of our hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And this is one of the defining characteristics that separates believers from non-believers. We experience the change from a conscience that determines right and wrong for itself to a conscience that submits to the headship of Christ. And instead of, instead of thinking we know what's right, God shows us what's right. 
And he does so in his word, and he does so through his spirit interpreting the word. Now, undergoing this change, this, this is the only way that we will draw near to God with a true heart. And by that, I think he means one that is undivided by either sinful rebellion or some sort of idolatrous longing, sinful desires. I love this idea of a true heart. And that's a great thing, I think, for each of us to pray for, a true, undivided heart, a heart of of, of integrity that's integral, one that accurately depicts Jesus as the only one on the throne. That's the heart that we need. And I love the the phrase that accompanies a true heart. It's our message title. (laughs) And consequently, the main point of the sermon that we all need to hear, as Christians, we can apparently live with the full assurance of faith. Now, what does that mean? We'll come to that in just a minute or two. Uh, Let's read this last sentence, and then we'll tie, tie this paragraph together, and we'll bring it home. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Folks, how do we do this? How do we hold fast our confession without wavering? It's by drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of the faith. And it's all a result. This is not something we've done, guys. It's something that has been done to us This sprinkling and this washing, we don't sprinkle ourselves, we don't wash ourselves, God does it. And as such, our assurance is fully vested in God. To be vested means uh, something to be certain. You want some scripture references? How about John 5 where Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. He has crossed over from death to life. A few chapters later in John 10, he says of his sheep that he gives them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand, he says. Romans 8 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 10 says whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. Friends, God doesn't change. God's love for us doesn't change. And we are at least theoretically capable of knowing that God has truly saved us for eternity. And that's great news, but there's a problem. <laughs> there's a, it's a twofold problem. Okay? First, there are a lot of saved Christians who do not feel assurance because of their sinful nature. People that are still on that hamster wheel of Romans 7 doing the things we don't want to do, not doing the things we want to do. But secondly, there are, in my opinion, far more unsaved people who have false assurance. And it's based on the wrong thing. They think they're saved because they grew up in church. Or because maybe they're not as big a a sinner as so-and-so. Or maybe they've been baptized, or they've said the sinner's prayer. They think that means they're saved. Listen, identifying as something you're not did not start with Bruce Jenner, guys. People have been falsely identifying as Christians for two millennia. It's been around a long time. It's not going away either. 
not until Jesus comes back. You know, even before Christ was born, the people of Assyria, this, this is all the way back in, in I want to say, you might correct me here, it's, it's either Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It's one of those big ones. Um, you know, the, the, the people of Israel kept saying, you know, oh, we don't have to worry about the Syrians. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They thought because they had the temple of the Lord there in their capital city, well, God's not going to let anything happen to them. But they weren't being obedient. They were living godless, filthy lives while pretending to be God's people. They weren't obeying him, and so he gave them over to one of the most wicked nations in all of history. So, so here's what we need to understand. The saved person can have assurance that is fully vested in God. But listen, this is important. We experience the full assurance of faith through obedience. We experience assurance through obedience. Friends, do you truly believe that gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe it? Yes. Okay. Do you trust in him to save you? Yes. Do you still sometimes doubt your salvation? Sometimes? You know, if you do, whether you're experiencing a time of trial or, or even a period of spiritual laziness, this is what you do. Draw near to God. The problem is that you're either drifting away from, from him or you feel like he's drifting away from you. And do you want to feel the assurance of salvation? If you want to feel that, then satisfy that desire by walking in obedient faith. You know, listen, um, the more we strive to do God's will, the more we experience the assurance. This is real. Listen, in the Bible, uh, saving faith is always connected to obedience. Faith is the root. Faith is what we are justified by. Obedience is the fruit. So friends, walk in the light as he is in the light. Stop doubting and start living with the full assurance that comes with faith in a wonderful Savior. Just as we love because he first loved us, we can be faithful to him because he is faithful to us. You know, in response to, to his faithfulness to us as his children and to his precious promises, we look to him and we follow. That's what we do. That's what a Christian does. You look to Jesus and you follow him. And friend, if you, if you truly believe on Jesus Christ and you show that by loving him and, and striving to obey, obey his commands, because that's what he said. He said, if you love me, I'll obey my commandments. Then as imperfect as you are, as messed up as I am, you know, we can trust in his forgiveness because he loves us. God loves you. Do you know that? I mean, I know you know it in here, but do you really know that? Do you know that God loves you? Do this with me. I want you to say, God loves me. God loves me. Say it again, but this time put your name in that last word. God loves Mark. Mm. He would not have put himself through the horrors of the cross and the grave if it weren't going to accomplish his purpose. And that purpose is to save all who come to him in repentant faith. So stop doubting that you're saved and live the freedom that comes from knowing God's love. 
It's not dependent, thank God, on our perfect performance. It's, on, it's dependent on the perfect life and death of His Son. And so in closing, I'd like to pray over you what the Apostle Paul prayed over the Ephesian church. I think there's a reason that Paul prayed a specific prayer over the congregation in Ephesus. I'd like to ask you to let me do the same thing over you. I pray to God that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, lean in. Lean in to the love of God. Trust Him for He is your salvation. But if you're trusting in anything else, including your own performance to save you, repent of that today. There there is only one name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. And that is the name Jesus Christ, that precious, precious name. So put your faith in him today. If you have any of these things that you see on this slide here, we invite you to come. Invite you to come.